0: Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca.
1: Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another free CC Partners live webinar. If you're not watching us live, then you're watching or listening to episode 18 of the Lawyers for Employers broadcast brought to you uh, by CC Partners. My name is Rob Boswell. I will be your moderator today. Our panelists today are Kelsey Orth, Charles Binns, Christina Tomaino, all members of the team here at CC Partners. For those of you who are meeting with us today for the first time, CC Partners is a boutique labor and employment law firm exclusively advising employers. And as you can see in the tagline behind Kelsey, we're lawyers for employers. That rhymes just coincidentally. When we're not working remotely, our flagship office is located in downtown Brampton, Ontario. And we also have offices in Barrie and in Sudbury. You can find us online at www.ccpartners.ca. This is the eighth webinar that we've presented on employment law issues relating to COVID-19. We originally scheduled today's program for yesterday, and we thank all of you who were able to adjust to the new time with with some late notice from us. This program, like all of our other programs, has been prepared uh, with up to date information, and I would say up to the minute information on today's uh, program. In this case, we will also address yesterday's announcement from the Ontario government regarding the reopening of child care centers. If you have questions, uh, you'll, you'll notice if you haven't used Zoom before, but if you have, you're probably a pro. But at the bottom, as you roll down your window, you'll see both a chat window and a Q&A option that is available. We would ask you to put your questions in the Q&A box and we'll address those uh, as best as we can. We may address some of those questions during the presentation, but we'll certainly uh, deal with them in a the Q&A portion that we've set aside for the end of the webinar. Today we have the special privilege of introducing Amy O'Neill, who is essentially our our fourth uh, panelist for the day. Amy's the co-chair of the Toronto Coalition of Better Childcare, and thank you, Amy, for joining us. Uh, we're going to start with a conversation between Kelsey and Amy, so Kelsey, take it away.
2: Thanks, Rob, and thank you so much, Amy, for being available, because I know uh, everybody's demanding your time right now. The rounds with the media, and important information that you have and that you've disseminated as widely as possible, a big part of what you do in that volunteer role as opposed to your day job, which I first came to know you at, at, at Treetop, the uh, I was surprised as, we were, as were we all. Okay, so I'm getting notes that it's hard to hear me. Um, thank you, everyone. Hopefully, this is a little bit better. Um, anyway, as I was saying, Amy, the surprise of yesterday's announcement in terms of timing and so on, and the lack of foreknowledge for the operators is of grave concern. Um, I mean, I heard as well in the questions of the Premier at the end where they specifically mentioned the recommendations put forward by the Ontario Coalition for Better Child Care and question from the, uh, the media member who asked it as to essentially why they um, why they ignored so many of them. So maybe. Amy, can you just kind of give us your thoughts, perspective, and, and what the guidelines are in place, what they might mean, and we'll start from there, and uh, and we'll see what happens.
3: Sure. Well, I mean, I was shocked and in disbelief, just like all of us probably here today on the panel that are operating child cares, um, although I wasn't exactly surprised given the um, historical um, actions of this government. Um I guess the main concern is that the Ontario Coalition for Better Child Care and the Association of Early Childhood Educators Ontario, Ontario um, we had come up with a very comprehensive framework for reopening. It was called From Reopening to Recovery. And in that plan, we had 70, uh, 27 very concrete, specific recommendations to this government on how we would be able to uh, reopen. Um, uh, safely, efficiently and effectively and essentially they ignored all of our recommendations. Um, there was no consultation as many of you probably know, um, but for those of us involved in advocacy, there was no consultation with the child care sector from this government um, or the Minister of Education himself
4: in developing
3: this so-called plan. Um, we feel it was very uh, disrespectful and irresponsible of this government and our feeling is that we need to make this government accountable um i think the biggest concern that we will have as operating operators going forward notwithstanding all of the operational issues um is the base funding we received zero new operating dollars and zero base funding dollars so, for those of you that are aware of the emergency child care centers that are currently operating, they're operating at a triple the cost per diem, uh, 24-7, with no parent fees paid for by the provincial government. The provincial government has now downloaded that on to nonprofit operators like ourselves to now manage without any additional funding. And, and it is unrealistic. Um, and quite frankly, irresponsible to put that on the backs of um, of nonprofit operators or any operator for that matter. So that's the number one concern. And the second concern that we have is with respect to ratios and group sizes. It was very unclear. We still have no clear direction from, um, from the government as to what that will actually look like. And third, we have no idea about eligibility requirements. So... For example, in my site, I may, if I'm lucky, be able to, you know, accept 30 children if and when we reopen out of 155. There are no clear guidelines as to how we can now forward with deciding whom and whom who, who cannot.
2: Sorry, yeah, and Amy, I know that's a big concern because even before the announcement, um, when there were rumblings of reduced cohorting all that all, all the various buzzwords that have been used um, I was starting to get questions about whether or not you know they had to give priority to frontline workers now it seems a little bit like almost as though this has been thrown out there because that emergency childcare is ending on the 26th and it's being offloaded to uh, the, the regular operators is that uh, something that you're kind of interpreting?
3: Yes, that's, that's our understanding as well. And, you know, we don't have any clear direction at all from Toronto children's services yet, um, and, or the school board. Um, I was at my school this afternoon to do a, to do an interview. And, um, I, again, I couldn't even access the school. Um, but we're, you know, the government is telling us that we can reopen tomorrow. And I think it's the same in the Catholic board school, um, my understanding is that priority will be given to um, emergency uh, care workers, to their children. What we're not sure of yet is how Toronto Children's Services will um, interpret this uh, framework. And if that means that we will only be allowed to accept, you know, subsidized families or families of, of frontline workers, we still have no information and yet we're being told that we need to prepare to operate tomorrow. I think. I think the biggest concern that I have as an operator, as opposed to as my advocacy hat, is that um, this is really throwing us under the bus. We, I mean, my understanding is that we are liable if we go into this um, and something happens as individual boards and uh, for, for, for individual members of boards. Um, and the government is going to take no accountability or responsibility if something goes wrong. Um, and that's very troublesome. That's very troubling.
2: Yeah, and that, that leads, I mean, we could, we could talk all day about all of the, the various intertwined issues. And I think um, the issue of boards, board responsibility and organizational, um, well, I mean, I want to be alarmist, but organizational viability going forward is something that um, is going to, to require a real hard look from everybody here, but especially in the not for profit sector, um, at, over the next week or two. Um, and <laughs> I see Karen commenting here. Karen Arnold has mm. commented in the chat and, and very valid points. And, you know, yeah, so we, we can have 10 people in a room, including staff and children, but no specific information as to ratios as they pertain to the CCEYA. Correct. Um, whether the wage subsidy as it currently stands will still be in effect. Uh, or able to be drawn upon is, is, a, is a question mark. And then, uh, of course, if you don't do it right, as Karen's, uh, Karen's oh, Karen got the guidance document earlier than some because 11.42, <laughs> I had another yeah. client who said they got it at 11.46. So, yeah, it, it seems like um, this is not designed for success. Um, what we want to do today is try to, give you the information with respect to employment issues that can and will arise as you consider all of the alternatives and options available to you um, You know, over the next little bit. I don't think, I mean, I may be wrong, but I, I highly doubt that anybody is as ready as you may be given the, the need, as I think the Ministry of Education said, all protocols and policies have to be approved um, yes. before you can operate. So I don't, Imagine that that's going to happen for many, let alone all uh, all of the licensed childcare operations in, in the province or even in, I mean, Toronto has over a thousand licensed child cares that they would have to get uh, up and running. It just, it's mind boggling that this is supposed to be uh, something that will somehow lead to success, let alone all of the question marks of what uh, clients and families feel. Um Thank you, Amy, for, for all Thank of you. this. And uh, hopefully you can stick around because I think we'll yeah. probably want to come back to this. Um, but uh, what we want to do from, from our perspective at CC Partners is highlight for, for all of you the um, the issues around employment, the for-profit, not-for-profit, unionized or non-unionized. Um, the reopening, such as it is, um, has various implications with respect to your employment obligations and your rights as an employer. So excuse me, let's get into that. I'm sorry. <clears throat> as I said, I'm, I'm a little bit hoarse, but I'm doing my best. Um, Teresa, you messaged everybody. You sounded great. <laughs> you did great. <laughs> That's okay. Um, or, sorry, Amy. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's get back to uh, to the program if we could, Mr. Moderator, and uh, and then we'll come back uh, as well. And you know, Again, feel free to chat away in the chat um, amongst yourselves because one of the other benefits of doing this is is allowing the, the flow of information and facilitation of information on a kind of instantaneous basis rather than having to send out chain emails and wait for responses. Um, but if you do have specific questions of us, please do it in the Q&A uh, section, as, as Rob mentioned.
1: Well, thanks, Kelsey. And thank you, Amy, for that... Uh very helpful start to our program. Originally, our program was, was uh, intended to be dedicated towards a review of uh, regulation 288.20 under the Employment Standards Act and to talk about the impact of that regulation on the temporary layoff provisions of that act and the, the deemed terminations that flow from the end of a temporary uh, layoff um, provision. That regulation, as you'll hear in a minute, has created a deemed leave of absence under the infectious disease emergency leave so we're going to start our part of the legal presentation by covering off those topics but we've also left quite a bit of time to come back and speak about issues specific to child care uh, centers and the reopening of so I'm going to share our PowerPoint presentation. I think that's up now um, so. Let's come back to, uh, I think, Kelsey, and we'll start with a little bit of an overview of some of the common law respecting termination.
2: Thank you, Rob. I had to uh, unmute myself there. So I'm I'm gonna go over these things um, in relatively brief form since I suspect many of you are aware of them in general, and then we'll get it down down into a little bit uh, more of the specifics for your consideration as you, parse out what you need to take into account, deciding how and when you'll reopen and, and what your alternatives are. So there are two ways to, to fire someone, either with just cause, where you have employee misconduct that has damaged the employment relationship so severely that it cannot be repaired, or with reasonable notice. So you can provide either actual advance notice of the termination or compensation for that notice period, pay in lieu of notice. Um, just cause, is a pretty high standard, and um, Just Cause is not related to the employer's finances for our purposes today. Just Cause is related specifically to (coughs) employee. Mr. Moderator, if you could advance the slide, please. So the second one is far more common and it's about reasonable notice. There are two concepts here. One is if your employment contract speaks specifically to the employees' entitlements upon termination, those that are provided in the employment contract. You have the Employment Standards Act minimums, which in respect of notice are up to eight weeks. Um, It's approximately one week per year of service. Eight weeks it tops out at, regardless of whether you've uh, finished eight years or 18 years. Um, There is also a severance component that uh, applies for larger employers who have payrolls of $2.5 Two point five million dollars or more per year in Ontario, uh, and that kicks in once an employee has reached five years. It's essentially an extra week of pay for every year of service to a maximum of twenty six weeks. So that's your ESA minimum. So any contractual term uh, dealing with termination has to at least meet those standards. So you can see, okay, well, you know, you're you're just over half a year um, if you limit things to. The maximum employment standards or just over or, or just that eight weeks if you like for severance as many or most of, of you are probably in that sphere. Um, if you don't have that termination language though then it falls back to the common law. Uh, common law is is what is developed through the cases uh, and decisions of our courts and in determining reasonable notice the courts take into account certain factors age, length of employment, the character of the position, availability of similar employment or the job market generally. You've probably all heard of the kind of rough estimate of about a month per year of service, and it gets adjusted up or down based on those factors that I just identified. Um, Currently, the max is usually two years or 24 months, a significant increase from the max of 34 weeks or the max of eight weeks, if you've got total employment standards, minimums, and, and not a severance employer. So, you know, if you don't have that employment agreement in place, or you don't have a limitation um, in your employment agreements, this is a big consideration. If you're not going to be able to operate anymore, or if you're going to um, permanently lay off or terminate someone's employment because of the new levels of service, um, then you've got to take into account what you might owe in uh, termination package or packages. All right, let's carry on. Thank you. So the other thing we've been dealing with throughout this COVID period, uh, and I will come back to effects for unionized employers a little bit. Um, During the COVID pandemic, uh, sorry, I'm seeing comments uh, and need to review something. And I, I will be able to do that. And I'll, you can ask that. I'll try not to. Why the Q&A is popping up. Um, but we a lot of uh, employers have had to lay people off, whether at the beginning, um, in the middle, or just coming up to it now. Uh, not everybody has been able to or will be able to keep everybody on payroll while they're not operating, regardless of whether you're getting the wage subsidy funding or not. You know, at some point funds dry up and or it just doesn't make sense. So traditionally, there are two ways to lay, lawfully lay an employee off. You have an express contractual right, whether that be in an employment agreement or in a collective agreement for unionized employers, or you have an implied contractual right on the basis of a past practice that's been, um, those are generally um, pretty clear in that there's a consistent pattern and so on any lawful layoff has to comply with applicable employment standards legislation. So in Ontario, prior to uh, Regulation 288.20, which Christina will talk about, there were two different thresholds. You could lay someone off for 13 weeks out of a 20-week period before it became a deemed termination, or you could lay someone off for 35 weeks out of a 52-week period if you continue to provide benefits or make substantial payments. Um, Christina will tell you how that has been altered by Regulation 288. But what I wanna get into is one of the concerns that we've had at the beginning of this pen, which uh, I believe shows up on the next slide. Um, oh, sorry, this is a, a definition of the, the layoff under the Employment Standards Act uh, Actually, in Ontario. Sorry, go tell ahead.
1: Kelsey, before you move on to that, just a couple of, we did get a couple of questions in the chat, one thing that probably makes sense address those from that topic so one of the questions was um, the comment that you made about an employee of five years or more that's terminated uh, with notice period I think the question is really uh, about the severance pay entitlement
2: yeah so I mean the, the the severance pay so employees will not be able to make a claim under both the Employment Standards Act and common law So if an employee makes a claim under the Employment Standards Act, their damages or award will be limited to what is provided for under the... She just
3: ruined her caller while I was on my my call, and I didn't know.
2: Uh, Uh, Amy, I guess, sorry,
1: Amy, do you mind if you mute yourself? This is where you had your comment come through. Sorry, go ahead, Kelsey. No,
2: that's fine. And and conversely, if you make a common law claim, um, those... Claims will subsume those ESA entitlements. Now, I want to be clear, though, sevens only applies for employers who have a payroll of two point five million dollars or more per year, Ontario. Input. So, hopefully, that answers that question. Um,
1: yeah, and then there was just one other quick question I might ask you to address too, because we've we've had that. It's specific about termination. So, uh, one of the attendees said, "What happens if we we have to close our?" I think this was actually, it may have been Amy, but someone else. What if we have to close our facility because we, we can't continue financially? Are we still liable to pay uh, termination pay and severance pay?
2: So in the normal circumstance, yes. Um, the wind down or dissolution of a corporation uh, does not absolve the corporation of its obligations to employees. Um, there are specific rules about what and who is liable for what in terms of payments so if there are outstanding wages um, when a corporation is wound down there are rules about that but I mean without getting into specifics the short answer uh, to that one Rob is that uh, yes you are still liable to employees if the corporation is shutting down now the practical side of that is uh, can't get blood from a stone and so when the money runs out, the money runs out, however that does. You know, not, that,
1: whether, not, that, not that we're calling any of you stones.
2: No. But whether, whether you know, and so you'll, you'll notice that I mentioned in the normal course, um, there's been zero indication of any adjustment or uh, leeway that may be provided by either level of government. Uh, and I say either because I'm discounting municipal purposes of this um, particular question, but neither the provincial nor the federal government have given any indication um, that they are willing to help out or relieve against or subsidize any of those kinds of obligations um, for businesses that fail or, and and I don't mean fail in the pejorative sense, but simply cannot go on due to the the financial impact of of COVID-19. So, um, I don't think, and, and I, you know, I, I doubt that there will be much, if anything, in that regard. You know, their their efforts, and we can we could debate all day the efficacy and and effectiveness of those efforts, but their efforts have been aimed at keeping things going rather than um, helping out. Those things cannot continue. Um, so I no, did, let's yeah, go ahead, Rob.
1: Yeah, no, let, let's uh, let's then maybe move a forward into the. Discussions about layoffs. Uh, I'm sure everybody on our call has had to lay off staff. So what what does the Employment Standards Act tell us about layoffs?
2: Yeah, so I did address this, um, but it's good to see it up on screen as well, right? And so two circumstances. If you don't provide benefits or you cease providing benefits, um, for 13 weeks, you can lay somebody off before it becomes a de-determining 20, 20 consecutive. If you are maintaining benefits or making substantial payments, you can take that all the way up to 35 weeks. Now, that's the normal course um, that does not take into account the amendments made by Regulation 288 that Christina will tell you about. If you exceed that period, it becomes what is called uh, under the ESA a deemed termination. And uh, in that case, um, you are then liable for the... Oh, go ahead. Yep. Perfect, Yeah, um, it it becomes a termination. So there is also an argument to be made that if, and this is a, a development through the common law, because notwithstanding the fact that the Employment Standards Act makes those specific provisions for periods of layoff, the case law has developed so as to say, if you do not have that express or implied contractual right to lay an employee off, and you seek to do so, this is a termination of employment. This is where an employee will claim constructive dismissal saying you employer do not have the right to lay me off and I have essentially been dismissed from employment and I can claim wrongful dismissal damages under my contract if I have such a contract or at common law, which uh, we heard before is is that potentially substantial award uh, of reasonable notice. I think I think
1: we've we've discussed this before in uh our last seminar that we had last week, and one of the things that that I noticed about uh, the a lot of the employees lawyers kind of early in the uh, period of the pandemic started talking about constructive dismissal, some of them are uh well known radio uh personalities as well, so they've been talking about that particular topic, so some of you might have heard about that. one thing we don't know is. How would the courts consider a question of constructive dismissal in these unique circumstances that we have? We haven't had a case where the province has essentially shut down pretty much the entire workforce with the exception of a few essential businesses. Is it fair to say that that's a constructive dismissal um, in those circumstances and essentially uh, you know hold the employer uh, responsible for those losses and I think that that kind of a question has been answered just to some extent with this regulation but did you have any thoughts about how the courts might consider a question of constructive dismissal or a temporary layoff in these kind of circumstances
2: well certainly Rob. as you mentioned um, you know we have discussed it <laughs> at, at length and uh, to to my view um, the the promulgation of this regulation supports the argument that we've been making on behalf of employers all along that these are special circumstances and this has to be looked at in a different uh, or through a different lens than the normal uh, application of constructive dismissal in the case of layoffs, right? Um, you know, perfect segue into this slide. Is there a modification to the application of the common law principles of constructive dismissal because of this? And, and I think, that, you know, if this regulation doesn't necessarily oust common law principles, it certainly can inform courts decisions as we go through this. Um, you know, we do have pieces of legislation like Regulation 288 that that give us some specific scenarios uh, that are directly affected. But I think it also informs um, the discussion in, in the common law sense and in the unionized context. And I do want to come back to to um, our unionized employers in in a moment, but um, just to follow this thought through, when you look at you know a completely novel situation, um, it would be bad in my view, it would be bad justice to simply mechanistically apply the old rules, and that's how case law evolves and and becomes. Um, our new norm, right, is because we look at new situations and develop new new approaches. And I think that is no different here. And just because, um, you know, in other circumstances, it might apply in a certain way, it doesn't have to here. And, and, uh, you know, you talk about when we talk about contract law, and this is perhaps a bit esoteric, but um, the principles of contract law require meetings of the minds. And you know in most cases uh, a your typical employment contract makes very little uh, or no provision at all for something like this because nobody's experienced it uh, you know so at, at least nobody in nobody of my vintage or yours rob um has experienced thanks. something like this thanks um
1: so somebody who's
2: under the age
1: of 120 has experienced this yeah, and exactly. i don't think we had an employment standards act
2: back in that yeah so um, you know, I, I, think it, I think it does inform the discussion. And obviously, it has specific application where, uh, where you'll hear um, from Christina about how it applies. Um, going back to the unionized context, when we talk about layoffs there, every collective agreement that I've ever seen and worked with has a layoff and recall provision. Um, those generally say that Employees will be laid off in reverse order of seniority, sometimes with a volunteer aspect to it, Um, but generally uh, they apply in in some way, shape or form, as I've just described, and then recall rights uh, of varying descriptions and for varying lengths of time. But again, here, um, some of the issues that, that our unionized employers have been dealing with is those layoff and recall provisions can have specific requirements to provide notice or to pay employees if they can't, if notice can't be provided. And I know we had some demands from unions up front at the beginning of this pandemic for strict adherence to those principles on the basis that this was a layoff. But being that daycares were closed by order of the province. Um, you know, that was exactly the argument that we made was, look, this is not a layoff. This is um, an unforeseen circumstance, a, a, an interruption that could not have been contemplated and wasn't contemplated by the parties in arriving at their layoff and recall provision language, um, and therefore it's not a layoff. Um, will there be layoffs when we come back? Yeah, almost, almost inevitably based on the rules that we've seen for reopening today. But um, you know, was it a layoff at the beginning? I still maintain no. And, and again, that's where Regulation 288 supports that argument. It doesn't necessarily prove it, but the spirit of it is certainly the same. Um, so that's what I wanted to say about layoff with respect to unionized employers as well. And, um, you know, I, I, think, I think that a lot of the specific considerations for reopening um, will have to be discussed at a later date. Um, but we want to get you thinking today about what questions you need to be asking, what considerations there are, and, and um, what you need to take into account as you look at what the few weeks and few months might mean for your your daycare.
1: Great. Thank you, Kelsey. Uh, just a couple of quick administrative comments before we move on to Christina. One is uh, some of you have indicated that you can't see the comments from other uh other attendees in the chat window and the reason for that is when you are completing your comment in the in the text box there's a there's a two um y- y- there's a there's a an option there's a drop down menu option in terms of who you want that uh comment to be seen by so if it says to all panelists that means it's being seen by the four of us uh plus amy um and no one else so a lot of the comments that we see in the in the chat box uh, only we can see and you can't see there is an option to click all panelists and attendees so if you want to share your comments so that you can have an open discussion in the chat with others then please select that and your comment will be visible to everyone else we can't change your selection in terms of who you want that to be seen by but you'll also see that you can send specific questions to, to any one of the panelists or a number of the attendees that are uh, joining through the Zoom uh, window as well. So you have some options. Um, also, if you want us to answer a, a legal type of question, a general legal question that's relevant to this material, please put it in the Q&A uh, window rather than the chat. It just is a lot easier for us as we're rolling through the many, many comments that we're seeing in the chat that include your questions. It's easier if we see them in the... um, Christina, finally, we've reached Regulation 28820. What does that, and what does it mean?
4: Thanks, Rob. Uh, So as many of you may have heard, Regulation 28820, uh, which is titled Infectious Disease Emergency Leave, was introduced by the Ontario government on May 29th, uh, so very recent. And this regulation temporarily amends the treatment of layoffs under the Employment Standards Act. So I know for for many uh, employers that I've been speaking to, one of the big concerns through the COVID-19 pandemic has been the the ticking clock, as it were, of the temporary layoff period under the ESA. So if, for example, you don't provide benefits, uh, you're looking at that 13 week timeline, that was getting fairly close to running out depending on when uh, layoffs begin and when your business was impacted by COVID-19. So there are three components to this new regulation, which I'd like to walk us through today. Uh, the first is amendments to the infectious disease emergency leave. If you remember, that was an additional leave that was introduced back in March. The second, as I mentioned, uh, amendments to the application of the temporary layoff provision. And closely tied to that is amendments to the application of the termination provision. So just some very uh, general points. These changes apply during what's called the COVID-19 period. So that is retroactive to March 1st, 2020, and will continue until six weeks after Ontario's state of emergency has been lifted. So we don't have a defined timeline in terms of a specific end date, um, but there is certainly some, some time for employers. Now, very importantly, as I know many of our attendees today have unionized workplaces, this regulation only applies to non-unionized employers. So if you're unionized, uh, as Kelsey mentioned, there are specific provisions in your collective agreement related to layoff, and, and that's where you should still be looking. So the regulation retroactively deems non-unionized employees whose hours of work or wages have been temporarily reduced or eliminated for reasons related to COVID-19 to be on infectious disease emergency leave. Now this is an unpaid job protective leave. It was introduced on March 22nd, uh, and it's essentially designed to provide employees who are quarantined, who have tested positive for COVID-19, or who have childcare obligations with a protective leave of employment. Uh, So this adds an additional category to that for anyone whose wages or hours of work have been implemented. And this does provide employees with all the protections of a statutory leave, including, uh, perhaps most importantly, the right to reinstatement. Now, one notable exception to this is that the employer is exempt from the normal requirement to continue contributions to a benefit plan while the employee is on the protected leave. So in ordinary circumstances, if say an employee goes off on parental leave um, or another job-protected leave, you would be required to continue benefits. In this case, if the employer was not making benefit plan contributions prior to May 29th, 2020, because the employee was on a layoff, uh, the employer is not required to do so now. If, however, the employer had been making those payments all along, uh, hoping to get that 35 week timeline as opposed to the 13 week timeline, it does appear that you are required to continue making those benefit contributions. Now, the next key area is for the application of the termination provision. So employees who were dismissed or permanently laid off after March 1st, 2020 or have already been provided with notice of termination, they will not be deemed to be on infectious emergency leave. Uh, So it's not retroactive in that sense. However, the regulation does explicitly provide that a temporary reduction or elimination in hours or wages for reasons related to COVID-19, will not be a layoff, termination, or constructive dismissal under the ESA, even if that reduction continues beyond the permissible temporary layoff period. So going back to that 13-week example, once you hit week 14, uh, you won't have a deemed termination on your hands because that employee has been placed onto infectious disease emergency leave. As a result of this, any complaints made under the ESA alleging termination as a result of a reduction or elimination of hours will just be deemed not to have been filed. So if you have any outstanding claims that you're dealing with, uh, that may be some good news. Now, unlike the deemed infectious disease emergency leave, which is retroactive, the termination element of the regulation is not. So any layoffs that already exceeded the allowable period under the ESA, those will still be considered termination. So effectively what this regulation does is it's really putting a pause on the wave of deemed terminations that many employers were uh, fearing would come to pass as the COVID-19 pandemic uh, has has lasted perhaps far longer than anyone was expecting. Um, and I believe now I will pass it off to Charles.
1: We're going to hold on, Charles, because I have a couple of questions for you about the thing. So so, just to summarize, this regulation applies to non-union workplaces, not unions or collective agreement workplaces.
4: That's correct. For those,
1: so for those questions, look to your collective agreement on the employees that you've laid off. That's what's going to go. exactly. Second, I... I noticed in that last bullet point on this slide, you, you, the, the regulation mentions elimination or reduction reduction in hours. And when Kelsey was talking about the temporary layoff provisions, that reduction was I think 50, 50%. Does this regulation mention the amount of reduction of hours or is it any reduction of hours that would result in a, in a protected leave?
4: So from my understanding and my reading of the regulation it's any reduction of hours related to COVID-19 would give rise to that entitlement to Okay. Priority.
1: So we could reduce your hours by less than 50%, which would not normally have triggered the temporary layoff provision, but, uh, but it would trigger the right to a leave of absence uh, under the IDEL. Uh,
4: that's right. I and I think that's... Um, one of the reasons why you see a distinction in the regulation between the deemed leave provisions and the layoff provisions, making that distinction clear that perhaps even if it wasn't a layoff, uh, it is still a leave.
1: So so Kelsey talked a little bit when I when I asked him to talk about the, the question about constructive dismissal and how that might be applied. and then he, he had a, a prepared slide to talk about that as well. But when when you look at this language, right in the regulation that mentions cons- constructive dismissal, how do you see that being of value if we're talking about a common law dismissal a case? Or even, even the issues that Kelsey talked about under union agreements, although this regulation doesn't apply to the unions, how, how can we turn to this language to say we're right about whether there should be a constructive dismissal or some sort of requirement to give notice when, you know, when we were shut down by the province?
4: So I think the regulation, while it doesn't necessarily uh, displace the common law or the ability of employees to make a common law claim of constructive dismissal, it's certainly a tool for employers that you can point to and say, okay, we, we've had this closure. The legislature has given us guidance that this should not be considered a constructive dismissal. If the employer is hoping and intending to recall that employee uh, we can give a clear answer there that, you know, the employee is on a leave, they're on a job protected leave. Um, so a claim at common law for constructive dismissal is inappropriate in that sense. Uh, whether that is an effective defense when these matters begin to proceed before the courts uh, remains to be seen, but I, I certainly think it's compelling.
1: I think it's very compelling, but I think we'll have to wait for, for one of our radio friends to uh, advance that argument. And see how the courts look at it. But it, to me, it seemed it just seemed to be uh, unreasonable to say I can't actually dismiss you because you're under a protected leave, but I could somehow constructively dismiss you for the exact same reason. It just doesn't make sense. Um, we did have a question that showed up in our chat box uh, from one of our our listeners about plans to terminate some employees, you know, rolling into the to the next school year in September. Can I give notice of termination to an employee, uh, for those business reasons, um, for any business reason, I guess,
4: um,
1: if they're under a protected leave?
4: So that's an, that's an interesting question. I think we've had some discussions on this, uh, in previous webinars and, uh, employers are, are not necessarily prohibited from, uh, Terminating employment for reasons completely unrelated to the leave. So, for example, if the business is closing, uh, there's going to be a termination of employment, even if that employee is on leave. I think it, it will have to be considered on an individual basis and whether the termination is related to COVID-19 and perhaps its impact on, on business operations and whether there's been a decline. Um, but I, I think that may need some some individual assessment.
1: Yeah, so I think I guess the best answer for us on that point would be if you have a situation where you're contemplating a termination, it's probably best to speak to us about the specific factors of your case so that we can vice in. Those may be those may be very case-specific answers from us. Okay, um, that's that's great, Christine. I know you're going to get a chance to talk about some of the questions that we've got coming up, but we're now coming back to... Reopening child care centers, and uh, Charles, we did hear some some great commentary from Amy in her discussion with Kelsey at the beginning, but can you walk us through for those who've either not had a chance to see it or haven't had a chance to truly digest the information what what did we learn yesterday from the provincial government about their plan for
0: Yeah, sure, thanks, Rob, uh, And I think the you know the initial answer. Um, everyone's thinking is not as not as much as we would hope we would have learned Um, and they did mention at some point obviously they distributed that document uh, with their guidance and they mentioned several times throughout that more information is coming or they refer people to other resources Um, and it is quite a lot of information to digest so given that we've already covered um, a bunch of topics today I don't want to overload you guys with too much because I know you you probably all have a lot of decisions that need to be made so what I'm going to try to do then is kind of view this all in the same kind of lens that we've been talking about and those are kind of staffing decisions and and what am I going to do with my staff and uh, potentially some options that you might have moving forward even though we're not quite there yet. Some things just to start thinking about now that you may be able to implement further down the road uh, even if you probably aren't going to get to them in the immediate future. So uh, as I was saying, we got that guidance document. Um, Hopefully everyone received the guidance document from... um, the government yesterday and so obviously that allowed child care centers uh, to open as of Friday June 12th so this Friday but only if certain guidelines are met and so the the major kind of guidelines and there are specifics here that we're not going to get into right now but uh, the major kind of guidelines are cohorting is the big one so it's essentially allowing a maximum of ten both children and staff basically ten people uh, in groups of ten I believe it's per room, depending on the how your child care center is set up. So obviously, people are trying to determine um, how they're going to deal with that, how that's going to affect their staffing numbers. Uh, everyone's going to have to have a COVID-19 response plan. So that's in case of an exposure that happens within, so presumably within the child care, or it could be an exposure that you become aware of um, outside the child care setting that impacts the child care center. Um, and I'm sure there are, there are lots of questions about that. I think we have those ourselves. Um, there are screening requirements. So from a staffing perspective, I'm sure many of you are asking yourselves, okay, so who's going to do the screening? Do I have to have them um, in, a, in a separate role from what they normally do or uh, potentially um, hire someone new or whatever it is? So there's obviously staffing concerns around that requirement. Uh, daily attendance records for both, uh, that's going to be for staff and for um, the children in your care and that's for contract tracing purposes. Um, Obviously a lot of staff I'm sure coming back in are going to have questions about information that you may be trying to collect Um, so that will be another thing to deal with. There's going to be increased cleaning requirements and uh, they're fairly detailed in the guidance document but again you're going to be asking yourself um, is our staffing complement as it is now gonna be enough to fulfill those requirements? Is there gonna be specific training that everyone is gonna to have to undergo? Um, what kind of policies am I gonna to have to put together? Those are all staffing concerns probably that are gonna to have to be sorted out before you can even open. And then there's the restriction on non-essential visitors and the drop off and pick up protocols to ensure that you're uh, facilitating social distancing. And then all of that kind of runs into the other two, which is the mandatory training and reporting, which is, again, is going to have to happen at the outset before you can reopen. And, of course, you're going to have to have your support from the local medical officer of health and um, basically sign off on your plan and your policies and you're satisfied that everything is in place. Um, So, actually, you're all trying – yeah, go ahead, Rob.
2: No, no, I complete your
1: comment, but I have a question for you. I want you
0: Sure. So yeah, it was just obviously that these are the immediate things that you guys are trying to deal with now, and um, I'm not going to take up too much time on this stuff because those are probably the questions that you want to have answered. But um, next, I was going to talk about a couple more resources. So, uh, Rob, if you have a question, I can answer that now.
1: Well, we, we've had some, we've had a couple of questions in the in the chat box, and we've heard these questions. When we're talking about screening, mm-hmm. is there any guidance provided from from the government about whether that would include mandatory COVID-19 testing for staff or even for for clientele?
0: uh, Yeah, so I guess the answer there is kind of a yes and a no. So they have um, a testing section in the guidance document, but it refers you to the provincial guidelines for testing. And then in that, which is a whole other document it's about 14 or 15 pages long, they kind of break it down in sections. Um, and I was, I was reviewing it just before we kind of came online here. I didn't see anything specific to child care. Um, and, again, they tend to be um, – the recommendations tend to be framed as just that, recommendations. There's not a lot of if this, you must do that. There's a lot of should be screening, should be testing. So it will be interesting to see if they release further um, guidance or requirements even for testing and screening uh, specific child care facilities. I
1: mean I, – I- Amy, I don't know if you're, you're kind of clued into us here, but is that something that you could quickly comment on before Charles continues his presentation? So well, the question about 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 using uh, mandatory or 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 suggested uh, COVID nineteen think for staff.
3: It's my understanding from the Ontario Coalition's um, conversations with Shannon Fuller, who's the Deputy of education, that right now um, there is no mandatory testing, per se, unless a child and or staff member becomes positive, like what happened at Jesse Ketchum Emergency Child Care C- Centre, then they were all tested. Uh, but again, I uh, we don't seem to be getting a clear answer in our asks. Um, and that has
1: been one of them. Okay, so that, I mean, that might be part of a COVID-19 response plan, I guess, more so than a frontline screening. But obviously there's a lot of guidance we're still waiting for. Yeah,
2: that, okay, well. That's a, good, that's a good point, Rob, with respect to the, uh, the, the response plan that is a requirement for centers reopening. Um, I think, you know, to break in from a legal perspective as uh, counsel to employers here, uh, I think what we would say is that uh, like absentee because the question came up um, and we have it for a q and a period, we might as well address it now since we 're talking about it and can we make it mandatory um, The quick answer is, is no absent is specifically mandated led whether it 's legislated or um, passed down uh, as part of the ministry of education 's requirements <clears throat> um, without that. You- you know the, the the law with respect to testing and, and health information um, in Ontario and in Canada is not such that you can make mandatory testing in this circumstance however um, I think what we would say is if an employee discloses that they have tested positive or even if they're experiencing symptoms and this is what we've said from the beginning um, and you know this advice hasn't necessarily been tested um, in litigation or anything like that but on a legal principle basis and the balancing of interest between safety and privacy of the individual you can certainly say if you've tested positive or experienced symptoms you have to do one or both of quarantine for 14 days because that's the recommendation or obtain a negative test and there's some you know some more stringent requirements in certain. Um, sectors about getting two negative tests within 48 hours and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, we can't force anybody and, and Premier Ford said it in his announcement. You, you can't, he's not going to force kids to get tested and it's up to the parents to, to do so. Um, but if you're not going to get tested and provide that negative result, then the alternative is, um, you know, 14 days away and certainly as a child care operator, you can absolutely have someone off work for that time. Um, you know, in our view, it's it's safety over uh, potential privacy issues uh, every day of the week when it comes to COVID.
1: So I suppose in a case where you you have a union and you've got a collective agreement, it's, it, it, it would be prudent to have these types of discussions with your, your union to try to resolve those uh, those plans going forward. I don't know if, Charles, you want to comment on on that kind of an idea before you move forward.
0: Yeah, that's actually, that's a good point, because um, not to be negative or anything, but sometimes, you know, these things can be more complicated when you have another party involved that, um, you know, maybe the level of involvement that they're entitled to or that they're seeking can be a bit of a gray area. But as a matter of good labor relations, it's especially something like this, it's always a good idea to loop them in, provide them with notice of things, if not actually seek their their input, because they can actually be very helpful when it comes to addressing certain staffing issues or communications with staff sometimes if you yep. can run it through them and uh, have it in your policies at the same time.
1: Yeah and we've, we've seen certainly in, in a lot of public discussions in, in a lot of uh, of the emergency uh, or central services uh, particularly in healthcare. we've heard from, from union organizations saying that they're very concerned about the health and safety component. So I would expect that if that was a process that you wanted to adopt in the context of your unionized workplace, it would certainly be uh, helpful to have the support of the union in terms of whatever protocols you want to put in place. Anyways, I'll I'll leave that discussion and move us uh, forward in your presentation, Charles.
0: Okay, thank you. So as you can see here, I, I just wanted to kind of highlight some additional resources for you. Obviously the first one here is this, so the emergency child care centers that were set up for frontline workers. That kind of has been superseded by the guidance that was released uh, by the government yesterday. So really the, um, it may still be interesting, but probably largely um, redundant now. The second, the um, second, resource, there's a Public Services Health and Safety Association guidance document. So this is what the government points to when you actually go onto their website where they have been releasing sector by sector um, workplace health and safety guides. This is what they actually point to for child care services. So if you have specific questions about um, cleaning, how to still facilitate social distancing, things like that that may not be like the details may not be quite fleshed out in the government guidance document, then you probably want to check there first um, and that'll get you going on your way. Um, As it relates to staffing specifically, I can tell you um, just for reference in the government guide that they do have some staffing considerations that begin at page 7 of that guide. And so again, it's there is some guidance, but it's a little light on details to kind of leave it to you to figure out the details. So they mention, um, so you're only supposed to have staff at one location. If you have multiple locations or if you know staff is working at another location as well as yours, um, they don't necessarily tell you how to navigate those waters, but it is a requirement there. Um, you're supposed to be limiting movement between rooms for supervisors and other types of employees. So again, it's these are the immediate kind of concerns that uh, you'll be grappling with you're going to have to get in place before we can really think about the next thing that I'm going to talk about, which is the kind of government programs that are designed in the normal course to help you with staffing issues that are brought on by temporary slowdowns in economic activity. Um, So I don't want to get too bogged down in the details of these because they can actually get um, quite detailed. So if you do have questions about this stuff, feel free to leave it in the Q&A. Or you know a week or a month or six months from now, if you find yourself finally in a position to start thinking about these things with your staff, feel free to circle back with any one of us, and we can. So the first one, uh, the program there, it's it's known as work sharing, and it kind of runs in conjunction with an EI plan. And the the really quick version of this essentially is that you have um, a work sharing unit, which could be the entirety of your workforce, could be a section of your workforce, it could be multiple sections of your workforce under different agreements. And they essentially all come together and agree to a reduction in their workload. Um, so it could be by days, it could be by hours, whatever it happens to be. And for the portion that they're not working, essentially they will qualify for a certain amount of EI benefits. So they kind of are keeping a foot in the workforce. They're not getting paid as much as they normally would. Um, and they've got to work kind of in the EI regime where they can lose some supplemental benefits. And it's kind of a way, kind of like the um, what the federal government's been trying to do all along. It's a way to keep employers engaged in the workplace, add uh, a little bit of extra support, and try to assist them um, in getting back up to um, regular operations. Um, so there are some new rules for the pandemic. You'll have to look at eligibility concerns. Um, so the things you need to consider are you know um, how your organization is organized, whether it's a, you know so the work sharing rules are deal with public companies, private companies not-for-profits, et cetera. So there's considerations there. Um, and then again, um, when to consider applying. The big thing here is probably not going to be worth applying immediately because you really need to know how to clear picture of what your work production is going to be, what your staff complement is going to be for an extended period of time. And you really need them. So something to look at a little later down the road. And then the sub-supplemental unemployment benefit plans you probably are familiar with. Uh, usually you see them with pregnancy and parental leave where it just basically gives... The employer the opportunity to top up the EI benefits that are being received for a certain period of time without any kind of clawback or penalty to the employee receiving it. So the only wrinkle with these as opposed to a pregnancy or parental sub plan um, is that they do need to be registered. So they don't take nearly as much planning um, or process as the work sharing agreements. So that's kind of a plus on that side. Um, but you do have to have them registered before they can be put in place. Um, one thing that we've learned in the last month or so is that these subplans do not operate in conjunction with CERB payments. So if you have employees out for the workforce who are receiving CERB payments, you cannot use a subplan to top up the CERB payments. Um, took a while to get that clarification, but uh, we, we finally did. And then why use, I kind of uh, went over that before. And then really the last two slides that I have here, again, I put these together kind of before this guidance came out yesterday. And they're really just kind of the general type of uh, workforce and staffing considerations that you would have other considerations to keep in mind. So keep up to date and ensure compliance with all public health guidelines. That's not going to change going forward. Um, And they will be, we're still learning things about COVID and transmission and all this kind of on a daily basis. So you'd really have to keep up to date with those Um, As guidance document says you're gonna have to have policies and procedures. Either you're gonna have to amend policies and procedures that you have in place um, Or you're gonna have to create all new policies and procedures and have those in place before you open Uh, With that you're gonna have to be providing training on those policies and any kind of content that those policies cover Probably before you operate and ongoing as things carry on Um, And then again considering protocols is kind of addressed in the guidance document and then finally on this last slide um, so again, just kind of occupational health, considering what kind of PPE is necessary, um, how much of it during hand washing stations, all of this stuff that I'm sure you guys are thinking, um, now. So that's really all the, the, the broad strokes kind of things I wanted to address. So I guess we're we can move on to the question and answer portion now and answer some we of the other questions.
1: We will. Thank you very much, Charles. Now we're going to move into the Q and A in a few minutes, but uh, first a couple of comments I'd like to make. Uh, on behalf of Christina, Charles, Kelsey, and Amy, thank you, uh, and all the lawyers for employers here at, L- uh, at CC Partners. I want to thank everybody for attending. We've had a really full house of attendees, and uh, we know that you've got a lot of questions, and uh, we're happy to to walk through as much as we can. Uh, special thanks to everyone who helped share the details of this webinar. Um, and if if you found the webinar useful, we'd encourage you to, again, share that information because this information and in our in our material will be posted on our various sites, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. We've had and we'll, we will have a large number of COVID-19 related articles. You can see quite a few of them already posted on our award-winning blog, which you can access right on our website. But Um, If you don't want to have to wait to visit the website to see our blogs, you can actually join our blog mailing list, which will send you a copy of our blogs when they're released directly to your email box. If you'd like to do that, contact info at ccpartners.ca, that's I-N-F-O at ccpartners.ca, and ask if you can be put on our blog emailing list. That's what you'll get. Uh, in our emails, it'll be our blogs. Sorry, Rob. Uh, I'm just
2: going to break in there as well. There is a separate uh, daycare or childcare-specific mailing list as well. Um, Excellent. Don't do one without the other. If you're in the childcare sector, get them both. Uh, get signed up for them both. But I uh, just wanted to be clear for everybody who is not aware of that because sometimes we have things that are more focused to individual sectors. and so. That's great.
1: That's great. So, again, that. Info at ccpartners.ca. So if you want to be added to our block list and our special child care uh, list, then ask for both. Uh, Video and podcast versions of today's program will be posted as soon as we can get it up. And that will be available through the broadcasts tab on our website, which is www.ccpartners.ca. You can also follow us on social media. And if you're looking for information about some of our Upcoming webinars, you'll, you'll also see us posting the, that information on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and on Facebook. So please follow us on those social media sites for up-to-date information. Uh, you can also watch our programs on our YouTube channel and listen to podcast versions of this episode and all of the episodes of the Lawyers for Employers podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts, or you can probably find us pretty much everywhere where you get your, your podcast regularly.
4: Welcome
0: to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca.